Hello, this is Tom Miller, editor of Solar Review Magazine, and welcome to another Solar Review podcast. Today, we're talking inverter tariffs with Baywa's Vice President of Operations, David Dunlap. We'll chat about David's recent tariff article he wrote for Solar Review, and we'll discuss some takeaways from the Section 201 tariff, whether it's all noise, and what a healthy response to the tariffs might be. Please don't forget to leave us a comment and like us on iTunes and tell others about the podcast as well. Now, let's go right to David Dunlap. Thanks for joining me today, David. Happy to be here. Thanks, Tom. So we're going to be talking about the article that you wrote last week about uh, the upcoming inverter tariffs. And you began the article talking about how we as consumers sometimes struggle with the idea of things being on sale, how this affects our perceptions of the product. Should we buy it now? When do we need to make that decision to buy it? All of that. So why do you think that the idea of being something being on sale is an apt metaphor for what's going on with inverter tariffs? Bring that together for me. Sure. I think the the reason that something being on sale incentivizing us to buy it is something we can all relate to. Um, I think everybody has been in a situation where you've just been browsing through a store or checking your online ads and notifications or even literally shopping online and you see something is dramatically discounted. That grabs our interest and we are tempted to consider how important that item is for us today or in the near future. Mm-hmm. Or maybe this is something I have been considering buying and, and now's the time because I see the sale. And of course, the magnitude of that price differential is, is ultimately what we're, cons- what we're worried about. A 70% off sale is way more tempting than a 5% off sale. Um, So I just thought that would be a good way to kind of grab the attention and thinking about what a potential price difference from what we had planned to spend for a contractor for a project is is the context. Mm -hmm. In the case of the tariffs, it's it's actually kind of the opposite. Um, Rather than it being on sale, what we know is that a price at some point in the near future for this product is going to be more expensive. So therefore, should I consider buying it now in advance of when I need it in order to insulate or protect myself from that higher cost in the future? And so it's a little bit of the alternate sort of psychology from a sale, but it's tempting in the same way. If something is going to increase 30%, then I should consider buying it now because it's going to be that much more expensive later. Right. And in your article, I thought you very rationally laid out the premise that for these upcoming inverter tariffs for a given seven kilowatt system, that might raise the price of a system by about $250. And that's not very much. So why is it like in the past with the Section 201 tariffs, has the response been, at least from my perspective, so irrational with with folks overbuying modules, which they're now sitting on, even as module prices have continued to fall? And I guess my question is, is the idea of the tariff causing more problems than the tariff itself? Um, yeah, I think that's exactly it, Tom. I think what what often is lacking in the the announcements or the media coverage of a policy change or something in this case, like uh, the implementation of a tariff, is it's hard to provide the sort of full picture context of what does this mean for me? So any individual um, contractor looking at a 30% increase in the cost of solar modules, that sounds alarming. Mm-hmm. And I think in the early days of the Section 201 PV tariff announcement, there was a lot of ambiguity 
about exactly how that 30% tariff rate would translate into the actual purchase price of the modules for the installers on their projects. And that's where we needed to get to in the end. But in the beginning, it just sounded bad, right? 30% change in my equipment costs. Oh, that's big. But if we do the math and we start to kind of look at the different scenarios of um, kind of take that rational approach of, okay, for this given module cost and, and total system, the modules are, pick a number, I don't know what it is right now, but let's say it's um, all equipment is um, less than 50% of the cost of the job. And mm-hmm. then the modules are the highest percentage cost item out of modules, inverter and racking. It's the bigger slice of the pie, but it's still a subset of that less than 50% equipment cost. And then 30% is a worst case scenario, as we found out kind of as the supply chain kind of dealt with it all the way through the actual end result was more like 10 to 15% of a net price change for people. You know, these are percentages of smaller percentages of subsets of the total system cost. And, and the people writing the articles and talking about the policy, that's obviously not their scope. And so they don't do it. But also I think we as a solar industry sometimes fail to share that information across our, ourselves and say, let's, let's really understand what is this going to do to your ability to compete on a job-by-job basis, or what's the, the homeowner expectation for equipment price changes versus the way you're selling the contract today. And because right. our margins are very thin at every layer of, of the solar industry, we do have to be very aware of this. We have to be very cautious about just saying, oh, that's not a big deal. I'm not going to worry about it. I'll absorb it, because um, that could have a much bigger effect on any of us than we, than we might intend. Right. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I'd point folks to your article to uh, look at some of the numbers. Uh, David lays out some of the percentages that he's talking about in the article. So I recommend people check it out. Mm-hmm. So this topic is pretty foreign to me. So this is this next question is probably more like a solar market 101 question. And it has two parts. You mentioned that at least anecdotally, as a result from the Section 201 tariff, that homeowners were mostly insulated from price increases on modules. So my question is, does this mean that most contractors' primary response when equipment prices rise is to maintain competitive pricing and absorb that extra cost? And conversely, walk me through the timeline of what happens when equipment prices fluctuate. What happens in the market? Yeah, so that's great. Let's let's deal with the first piece of it. Um, I don't think that that any contractor assumes that it's their responsibility to absorb a price increase on equipment or any other costs, um, soft costs or hard costs in the system. But there is definitely in an industry like ours where we have seen kind of continual decreases over time of the equipment, and we kind of expect that any price changes that are coming are going to be downward rather than upward. I think we do have a psychological concern over presenting uh, a price today that's higher than what you would have presented a week ago or a month ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think that there's sort of just a general overall psychological fear or concern that everyone's perception is solar is getting cheaper. And that is absolutely true, but it's been falling for so long and the technology sort of capabilities from a cost per watt standpoint have dropped so far. We are starting to get towards the bottom of the current technology availability, the current price effectiveness, if you will, in terms of the the manufacturing without a, a sort of a next generation leap of change in technology. So if we assume that the equipment pricing is going to start 
kind of bottoming out or leveling out. And we know that equipment pricing is now less than half of the total cost of a system for an installer, labor and, and cost of customer acquisition and financing and all these other pieces, permitting all the other stuff besides equipment. The, the amount of change in price on equipment changes the overall system cost by a smaller ratio than just what that percentage of change on the equipment cost mm -hmm. is, up or down. So that's the first part that we have to all kind of keep a top of mind and, and awareness of when we're, when we're dealing with it. And then the second part is really understanding, um, it, because it's different for everyone's place within the, the solar industry, um, a local smaller contractor dealing with a competitor in the same local environment may be competing on price, but they may also be competing very much on a full value add of their service as a contractor. And the truth is very likely that $250 or $500 difference on a bid is not what wins them the bid. Right. They're differentiating themselves on things other than just a cost. And oftentimes the bids from different contractors are not apples to apples in terms of the exact equipment. So one system cost is whatever the number is, $22,000. Another system cost is $25,000. But you can't compare them exactly as a side-by-side -side and say, here's exactly where this price difference affects my bid versus their bid, because if they're not even using the same equipment, the price differences aren't, aren't there. So again, it's about kind of understanding um, how that change is going to affect any individual's uh, contractor's strategy, what their ability to negotiate or, or adjust their final system pricing with the homeowner is and how they win deals. That's ultimately what's going to affect their decision to absorb some amount of cost or not. Did I already build in 5% of leeway in my pricing to negotiate? And so whether that came from an equipment cost change or it comes from somewhere else, how comfortable am I with those dynamics and, and where else do I need to make sure that I, I make ends meet at the end of the day? Yeah. With hard costs, we as a, as a collective contractor-minded um, uh, solar industry professionals do think that anytime there's a change in hard costs to us, we should be reflecting it in our hard cost portion to our next customer in order to not lose ground. And so I think when a price drop happens, we're incentivized to pass it through. That makes us look more attractive, more competitive, ahead of the curve, if you will, on, on you know, being a, a low-cost leader. But other times, you might be suffering from a constraint in a previous um, round of price structure that now a price drop means you can catch up and you can get back to the margin level that you wanted to be at. And dropping your price isn't going to help you get ahead in your business or capture more market share. So you choose to hold on to it instead. Conversely, with an increase, it's kind of the same dynamics, but in the opposite direction. And, and I think um, a lot of times we do have fear over raising somebody's price because we assume that's a negative. It's a bad thing. If I raise my price, I'm going to lose some jobs. I'm going to lose my, my pipeline of sales. I'm going to lose my customers. So I don't want to do it. So again, psychologically, I think we go through that turmoil sometimes before we actually crunch the numbers and say, is this really going to make a difference? Or is it a difference that I can't absorb or shouldn't absorb? Mm -hmm. and so therefore, I'm going to take it to the market. Right. Then maybe this is a naive question, but hearing what you, what you just said and how given the inverter tariff that's coming, the, the price increase for a 7KW system you're talking is only $250. It really seems to me that you're, you're basically saying with this inverter tariff that's coming, just don't listen to the noise. 
you know, no reaction in this case might be a better reaction if these price increases really are going to be so small. Is that is that a fair uh, statement? Um, I think I would find a little bit of issue with saying don't pay attention. Um, I think it is important to say in the context of this change and this pressure, the overall impact or risk is X, right? And so by my math, which other people can certainly um, choose to do their math a little differently and make different assumptions, they can say the net impact is twice that much, or they can say there's no impact. I'm not actually buying any inverters that are made in China and are going to be subject to this tariff. So for my um, offerings to my customers, there's no change. It doesn't matter to me. So I think that's the important part is we, we do have to um, kind of share the collective knowledge, the information that's available to us with, um, with these changes and really understand how they're going to affect ourselves, but also our, our industry and our market as a whole, and then be talking about them within those con- uh, constructs, in my mind. Um, so it's, it is important to understand. But until we understand the context and the full impact, it's harder, I think, to make an accurate judgment of should I be afraid? Should I be coming up with a risk management strategy, et cetera? Yeah. Okay. So I want to start to wrap up. And maybe you don't want to answer this next question because you tend to be very conservative in these matters, which I happen to agree with. But for the sake of drawing out the story, how would a company willing to take on a lot of risk capitalize on something like the Section 201 tariff. Give me the the best case scenario uh, and where they'd be if they had implemented this this amazing plan with the Section 201 tariffs back when they hit. So the 201 tariffs, it, it is an interesting opportunity now to look back in retrospect and, and see kind of what happened. I think that um, there were plenty of businesses at different layers within the supply chain. So some manufacturers, some distributors, and even some large contractors that had the cash and the uh, ability to purchase large volumes of product, hold it for six to eight months. I think the, the strategy certainly that was being employed there was today's cost is lower than tomorrow's cost by you know anywhere from zero to 30%. And so if I can see my way through my financial balance sheet to invest my cash in inventory, and I have a cost-effective way of storing it and holding on to it for some period of time, and, and anybody who, who is looking at this should be defining that period of time, what's healthy and what's not healthy. So I can afford to do this for three months versus I can afford to do it for 12 months. That's an important difference. And then they would perhaps be able to say, I can, by virtue of having secured this product at this price, maintain my price to my, uh, my end customers in terms of the systems throughout that, that time lag. And my expected run rate of projects is X. And so my absorption rate of the product is Y. And so I should have installed it all within four months. That can be a great plan laid out at the beginning but if we don't really understand what might change that would change that plan from being successful and, and maybe even having modeled it in advance, we don't know when that plan starts to go off the rails. 
So in hindsight, with the 201 tariff, what we actually saw happen was the rate at which the homeowners were buying systems from the installer base. And, and so the installed megawatts per month rate didn't change from what was expected and, and sort of what the overall GTM data would have told us for from middle of last year to end of this year. I mm. think by the time the data comes out, we'll see that it was pretty flat with the original expectations of the residential market as a whole. But what did happen was the manufacturers and, and some distributors and maybe even some contractors, but mostly it was at the, the upper two layers of the supply chain, recognized a lot of sales in Q3 and Q4 of 2017 and even in January, February of this year that they didn't expect. So that was the, the sort of safe harboring of product at the pre-tariff price. We mm -hmm. stockpiled, we stuffed our warehouses with product believing that then we're safe and we're going to have product to, to sell to the next layer down at a better, more competitive price. But then in uh, March and April and May, the manufacturers stopped seeing the sales that they had expected to see in Q2 because they had actually recognized the, the sales in the previous quarters, but the financial planning didn't reflect that. So they still had targets that they needed to hit in Q2 and they weren't hitting them. So what does that do? It starts to increase the amount of available supply and there's pressure on, on every company to move more volume and classic macroeconomics, right? You have too much supply and not enough demand. What happens? The price starts to come down. Mm -hmm. So in Q3, we started to see um, dramatic shifts in the pricing that we didn't expect. And now we're at a point where pricing post section 201 tariff is actually lower than it was pre-tariff. So that's the curveball that we didn't see. And I think that as an industry, we're still kind of young enough and small enough that we don't understand our ability to affect our own macroeconomic forces. And so by kind of all deciding to employ the same strategy of moving our sales up two quarters and then not having a plan for what that does to us in those future quarters resulted in a kind of forcing the supply demand dynamic to shift and forced a price change that we didn't anticipate. And so somebody who won in that earlier scenario was somebody who was actually able to safeguard additional product at a lower price, capture more market share because they had a lower price offering to some subset of the, of the market within a short enough time period that they were able to sell through the product before it started to lose value. What I actually think happened is very few people won because everybody overbought. We, we ended up um, our product, and this is at all layers, became less valuable before we recognized the urgency and we weren't able to kind of create that artificial additional demand. And so everybody ended up selling the product for less than they paid for it or certainly less than the margin they hoped to make on it in order to unload it because it right. was weighing down their, their cash flow. So great. Okay. So final question then, what what would be the what would have been the healthy response to the section two oh one tariff? <sighs> Boy, that is a tough one because I do think that short term and for small sort of segments of the overall industry, there can be some benefit to smart buying. But I, I think it has to be within the context of what does smart mean for me and my business? And if every contractor, every distributor, and every manufacturer is looking at that and making healthy, honest decisions around it, 
rather than kind of fear-based, well, I don't know what the right number is, but it's got to be more than nothing. So, you know, I'll buy 10,000. I think it is just kind of um, understanding what what a, a, a reasonable kind of measured approach to that might look like. Put some numbers to it and hold yourself accountable to those numbers and then see how you did at the end. Because then that would give you the tools to assess whether it was in fact a smart decision the next time the same kind of thing comes up. Um, as our industry and the product segment becomes a bit more mainstream, if you will, and commoditized, I think we should all be expecting regular fluctuations in price up and down that are kind of just the way things are. Most people don't buy up a whole bunch of gas um, for their car ahead of when they need it just because the price seems like it's starting to go up. We will top off our tank before you know the next day if we know that the price is going to jump. But we're still going to drive the same. We're still going to use up that gas over the course of the next week. And a week later, we're going to be buying that next tank of gas at the higher price. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't fundamentally change our driving behavior until it's something much bigger, longer lasting, and more dynamic where we say, I'm giving up the car and I'm switching to a bike. Yeah. Right. Um, I think what's really more important right now for us um, as we're maturing as an industry and as we're navigating the, the challenges of a low margin business is predictability. And if we want to be selling a contract two months in advance of installing it, we need some price security there. We need to be able to count on it, but we can't be afraid of changes in that pricing that we can measure and deploy in a sort of a predictable fashion. Great. Well, those were all my questions. Thanks for taking the time today to chat about your article, David. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you very much.